So I'd like to talk, as I said in the introductory talk of this series, I'd like to talk a little bit again about metaphysics, really, ontology and epistemology. Ontology, loosely speaking, is a philosophical term for the, the kind of exploration or study of the philosophy of what, what is actually real and what is not real. And epistemology is the philosophical term for the exploration of how do we know, how do we know what's real or not real, what kind of knowledge about the world, about ourselves, about anything can we trust, what constitutes knowledge and what does not constitute knowledge. So those two areas, ontology and epistemology, are um, intimately woven together, Uh, they kind of really imply each other. And um, and they form part, traditionally they form part of what's called metaphysics. Um, so I've talked about this uh, a fair amount, you know, woven into the, um, well, certainly um, the emptiness teachings over the years, but then also woven into the soul-making teachings. Um, perhaps slightly different uh openings into the territory um, tonight, uh, I'm supposing that some people uh, will listen and feel um, a need to hear this kind of material, this kind of exploration, these kind of questions, uh, the kind of um, history of our culture's thinking and explorations and philosophy and science um, that has... Uh, gone on over the years, uh, and there will be a need for that, um, both in terms of uh, their legitimizing for themselves uh, practices of sensing the soul and the imaginal, etc., um, but also how one relates to, to existence. And of course, that's not different. Um, that's not other than the practice of sensing the soul. Sense with soul, it has implications about how I live and how I see and how I. Uh, feel the world. So some people will feel a need for this and, and, and others um, will just be interested and find it fascinating and there's a kind of, some degree of eros in the exploration of these kinds of ideas and uh, hearing about them. And other people uh, will maybe neither be uh, interested nor, nor feel a need. Um, now all of that, that, that variety in um, where it lands uh, with you is is to me interesting, um, and I hope to uh, weave in the fact of that um, variety and that range of relationships to these kinds of explorations and questions and ponderings. I hope to weave that in uh, a little bit into the points I'm trying to make. But as I've already just kind of alluded to, why is this important? Why is the questions of what is actually real and what kind of uh, knowing, uh, what constitutes knowledge, what constitutes knowing, what kind of knowing and sense of um, things and sense of truth can are trustworthy or uh, valid? And why is that all important? Uh, well, um, you can... I hope, 
guessed the answer already, that all that has implications for how a person will regard or value the whole domain of practices that we're calling sensing the soul. If I've decided that <clears throat> this kind of thing is real and that kind of thing is just absolutely not real and therefore worthless, not valuable, not valid, etc. And if um, the kinds of perceptions and senses involved in what we call sensing the soul are in the that category, not real, worthless, etc. Then those kinds of perceptions and what they bring to the soul and the heart and the action and the speech and the aspiration and the dedication and devotion in human life is also relegated to the pile of rubbish um, unworthy, not valid, etc. Conversely, though, if we can open up the, at least the possibilities of <clears throat> ontologies and epistemologies that justify and give value and uh, validation to sensing the soul, that undergird those kind of practices and support it, then... Um, then that has big implications, not just for individuals, but it, it culturally, perhaps, for uh, our relationships to ourselves, to other human beings, to other species, to the planet, to the world, to also our desire, um, etc. All of that, how we view all of that, and how seriously we take it, and how powerful the um, consequences of such practices can be. So I think I think there definitely absolutely is a case for uh, for saying this is important. This is important territory, um, and yet, and yet still that as I said that range and variety of how much people feel they need to open this area up or explore it or hear about it and how much they're even interested. Um, that variety itself is also interesting and uh, something to consider and to reflect on. Um, But in line with what I just said uh, a minute ago, um, uh, someone called Moscovici, I'm not sure exactly who he was, but um, he says, uh, wrote, questions of epistemology, questions of what constitutes actual knowledge, what constitutes knowing, and not just kind of illusory fantasy. Questions of epistemology are also questions of social order. Questions of epistemology are also questions of social order. We could add questions of ontology are also questions of social order. As I said, epistemology and ontology, they go together. They they, they weave in, they they involve each other. Why are they questions of social order? Because of what I just said. Because of the fact that um, what we consider real often forms the limit of what we uh, genuinely uh, and deeply respect. So if, for example, the kinds of (coughs) senses of things and perceptions, the kinds of knowing, let's say, that we um, open up to (coughs) and support with sensing with soul, if that is considered not real, we won't respect it. And we'll only respect something else called real. Um, And all that shapes what a culture does, what it prioritizes, how the economy is geared, where taxes go, what people invest in, how they measure um, progress and well-being and all all that kind of thing. 
there are also issues uh, on top of that of, of power involved. So maybe he meant both in terms of social order, I don't know, maybe, maybe he meant something else, I don't know, but um, in terms of, as Foucault points out, knowledge and power are inextricably uh, related so that um, when a culture as a whole um, either openly or more subtly decrees some, this, this is real and that is not real, therefore this is worthy respect, that is not worthy of respect, <clears throat> then um, that also uh, automatically brings into play a kind of um, hierarchy of power of social relations and social structures um, dependent on which camp one falls one, uh, in, into. If unhappily uh, one falls into the camp of uh, sympathizing with and um, finding beauty and import in the kinds of sensing the soul, for example, uh, and they're, they're not respected, they're not in the dominant paradigm, and so they get, uh, as I said, either subtly or, or, um, or openly, they get um, pushed down uh, the pecking order in the hierarchy. <clears throat> of course, all that can happen, even ostensibly in a in a sort of um, uh, what do you call it? You know, kind of democracy where there's free speech, etc. Or um, or in our culture where where people are still many people are still frightened, or it, it's um, taboo even for. Uh, completely irreligious and secular people it's still taboo often to um, discriminate against people who have certain religious views etc and yet still there might be um, more subtle uh, uh, hi- hierarchies of power etc in all kinds of ways so I think all this is important and um, uh, like I said I want to um, trace a little bit of history, um, lay out in a way how things have a little bit unraveled, at least at one, let's say, strata of society, maybe the more intellectual strata, also at another level, um, and what that might open up, that kind of unraveling, that kind of um, the place where we've got to in relation to these questions about truth and reality and knowledge. Because many, many of us will, will actually be ignorant about all this. Um, there have been certain uh, developments in philosophy, but even more so in, in science, in the last, say, 130 years or so, uh, 120 years, um, that really open up um, and challenge and shape the very foundations of these questions of ontology and epistemology, and yet very little of that has kind of trickled down to the person on the street, uh, etc. So, um, just very briefly, historically, you know, following um, the scientific revolution, in uh, some hundreds of years ago, and the sort of um, fathers, if you like, of that revolution, Galileo, Descartes, Locke, Newton, 
um, what came slowly, gradually to dominate, and that's an important point as well, uh, that uh, that revolution, like many revolutions, also um, uh, it wasn't it wasn't something that everyone said, oh yeah, of course, that's right, I get it now, uh, how, how stupid we've been. Um, it was something that was very gradually uh, brought into the mainstream and gradually sort of um, adopted um, by most people unconsciously by a kind of indoctrination um, to, to become the dominant view. And we can call that uh, what Galileo, Descartes, Locke and Newton and others kind of instigated or brought about that revolution. Um, we can call that uh, the classical scientific worldview. And that has become, as I said, the dominant worldview um, probably for most people on, on the planet right now, I would, I would assume. Um, so that even when... <coughs> uh, even when a person kind of feels allegiances to other contradictory views, um, there's still a, a, a lot of gravitational pull towards this classical scientific worldview. Um, it's, uh, I think it was Charles Taylor, that's one of the marks of, of secular age, is that no one can um, completely, naively believe certain beliefs anymore that don't fit the classical scientific worldview. There's always a kind of pull of, of doubt there um, because of the uh, the weight of it and the entrenchment of it. And also uh, because it's been so successful, and that's partly how it grew to dominance, it, it, was, uh, it, it wields great predictive power, for instance, about where a cannonball will land or a rocket or a uh, an engine or whatever it is, you know, um, and and uh, great great power in uh, what it has enabled humanity to build uh, uh, technologically. Um, you know, hugely uh, helpful and hugely problematic as well, but um, enormous uh, power, both pr- in terms of its predictive power and its uh, technological power and the power over nature. And with all that, um, because of its predictive power and its uh, technological consequences or, or uh, spawnings, um, it, it has come to be regarded as true. It's the truth. It's how things are. Uh, which, strictly speaking, doesn't follow. Um, and uh, you know, if we care about these things, that's a point worth um, worth noting. But what does that classical scientific worldview, the dominant the dominant paradigm of scientific materialism, what does it kind of hold? Um, it kind of holds that the universe is made of little bits of stuff. Uh, we call them atoms, but we might be that view, uh, loosely in that view, might be referring to subatomic particles, although that would be a mistake. Um, but loosely, it, it, the world uh, is made up, everything is made up of atoms, and these atoms kind of uh, are set in motion and then follow uh, uh, their motions according to certain physical laws, 
and they bump into each other and interact with each other according to certain physical laws. And the whole thing kind of runs like clockwork. So there is no divinity um, present in the workings of that. Um, and, and the whole thing is purposeless. Um, I used to say random, then I realized that's, quite, that's the wrong word. Uh, what I really meant, um, if I've said this in the past, is the purposeless movement of atoms. It's not moving towards anything, uh, any purpose. There's no meaning uh, to the universe, to the movement of matter, etc. In its extreme form, um, it reduces the whole of the universe to just matter, functioning like clockwork and um, somehow producing consciousness as well. Um, and in fact, the clockwork analogy uh, is interesting because it was a deliberate analogy, I think, on the part of Descartes and other people. Uh, and it was just that time in history where clocks were uh, either uh, becoming more prominent or, or had kind of just been invented, etc. So the, the, the idea for the philosophy and the vision of nature was kind of given a little bit by what was present um, as a new technology and, and uh, a prevalent technology um, to, that one encountered in, in the world. It's interesting now, if you read a lot of um, uh, reports on, on current scientific theories, how they, uh, they don't talk about clockwork anymore, they talk about information. And the whole universe is just information, or the whole universe is a supercomputer, or even there's theories about the whole universe being, being in fact, um, uh, a computer simulation. Anyway, the, the point is that it's interesting to note how the, the worldview can uh, kind of just be um, conditioned by uh, what's prevalent in terms of the technology that we encounter. Uh, but like I said, all of that says... It, uh, either has nothing to say about meaning, or, taken a little bit further, actually um, postulates dogmatically, or posits dogmatically, a meaningless universe, a meaningless cosmos. It has nothing to say about ethics, and correspondingly, um, in, the, in the strict view of, of, um, uh, of that scientific materialism, um, there's... Uh, there is nothing to say about ethics, as ethics are not uh, kind of integral to the universe. It's also what we might call a kind of flatland view, um, in the sense that it, it, it lacks meaning, it lacks divinity, it lacks, it lacks a lot of dimensionality. Um, and again, that word's a little tricky, dimensionality, but partly um, what we could say dimensionality is, is like depth, it's like what's not what's not immediately apparent. So actually, that scientific worldview, that classical scientific worldview, um, only allows certain kinds of dimensionality. For example, the <clears throat> mathematical laws, whether it's of uh, gravity or electrons or w whatever it is, um, are a kind of uh, dimension of the being of, of matter. So there's matter and a kind of 
deeper strata that's not separate from matter, it's part of matter, but it's a deeper dimension, if you like, um, are the, the laws that matter obeys, or the various mathematical equations and laws, etc. Um, and uh, so it admits only that kind of dimensionality. Um, and all the time it has, the, it's supposed to keep the view of all this is subject to experimental proof. So if a law gets disproved or improved upon or whatever, or if a, a deeper strata of reality, uh, you know, a more fundamental particle, a smaller particle that makes up larger subatomic particles, um, is discovered or proved not to exist or, or whatever, it's uh, subject to that. So anyway, there's very... Uh, limited kinds of dimensionality. It's a kind of flatland uh, world, a flat, a flat universe, if you like, without dimensionality. But actually, if we, depending on how we use that word, we can we can say that there is a certain kinds of dimensionality allowed. All that, um, as I said, over over time, came to just be regarded as common sense. Um, in other words, what everyone would kind of agree on as as the, the truth of things. Um, it didn't start that way. It didn't start that way at all. Um, so that, as I said, took some time for it to uh, evolve to be the dominant paradigm where everyone would just, well, that's how the world is, that's how we think of it, that's how we relate to it, that's actually how we see it. And this world, just to specify um, some more <coughs> components of it, uh, is a world of what Newton called absolute space and absolute time. So space is just pure empty space. It's absolutely still and it forms a kind of um, backdrop for all this purposeless movement of atoms, etc., according to physical laws. But space is kind of just neutral. It's just a receptacle, if you like. Yes, like a backdrop. And time, too. That time uh, is absolute. It's the same for everyone anywhere. It just trundles on regardless of what is happening or what is there. There's also wrapped up the element and the postulate of cause and effect. This effect is due to this cause or these causes in the past. And in the conception of that cosmos in the idea and theory of it and also and this is important what observations for a long time seemed to verify back and validate that conception was that the universe is made of things that are clearly this or that it's a wave, or it's a particle, or it's a, this kind of particle as opposed to that kind of particle, and made up of clearly differentiable things with clearly differentiable properties. For example, the position of a particle, or its speed or momentum, its energy, the time at which a certain event happened in the life of that particle or collision or whatever, all these are clear and clearly measurable, accurately, definitively measurable, at least in, in potential. They all exist independent of the observer and independent of the way the observer chooses to observe the mode of measurement or observation, the way of looking. 
these clearly differentiable entities that this cosmos is made up of are also only influenced their behavior and their manifestation is dependent only on obvious interactions that they have had in their vicinity all of which has become as i said the kind of common sense view so if this particle possesses this property we can see oh it or this manifestation it's because of this interaction or whatever which we can trace to something in its locale after a few hundred years of this however experimental results came in that started to shake up this whole world view and caused a great amount of uh, commotion agitation and debate and brilliant um, embold investigation and discussion and innovation uh, and resulting in the sort of double revolution of Einstein's relativity theories and also the quantum revolution of quantum physics so there was a kind of shattering really of that whole world view its very foundations and its foundational assumptions were rocked and broken and brought into question as if the rug had been pulled out from the whole sense of the cosmos and an ability to even make sense of the cosmos so some of you will know some of this but for example classically light was regarded as a wave and then it was seen to be um, be able to manifest both as a wave and as a particle what it manifested to us whether it manifested as a wave or as a particle depended on the kind of observation we made so those are two bore use the word complementary they're actually contradictory uh, manifestations contradictory attributes to be a wave is something very different than to be a particle a particle is a, a small thing in a fixed location and a, a wave is not is spread out what's what's the reality there there's a term called superposition so this refers to in quantum physics it refers to something being in a kind of hybrid state let's say of two complementary or contradictory states so for example when we measure it this way we see a wave when we observe it that way we see a particle when we're not measuring it it's neither one nor the other the wave and particle states are superposed if that example is not that radical uh, for you consider also the example that's central to schrodinger's cat thought experiment where a radioactive particle is in a state of being both decayed and not decayed or neither decayed and not decayed this radioactive decay has it happened yet or has it not happened yet and it's said to be in a state of superposition where it's both decayed and not decayed at the same time but what that actually means is something very abstract with this superposition principle so recently in the last few decades i think they've observed it in larger and larger objects 
So there can be a tendency for some people, and again, I think this is interesting if we talk about the psychology of epistemology, there can be a tendency for some people to hear some of these remarkable, mind-boggling results and facts about the quantum world and and kind of relegate them. So that's all for very little stuff, which I don't really encounter, and go about one's everyday life with a view of reality that's essentially unchanged that has absorbed that common sense classical physics worldview and takes that to be the way it is. But this superposition, this baffling, undescribable, at least undescribable language or concept, coexistence somehow of this state that encompasses two contradictory states. This superposition has been observed more recently in, in larger and larger things. So where's the boundary? Can I really just relegate all this, all these discoveries and conundra of the quantum world, can I really relegate that to something that bears no relevance for my life? So you can hear, as I said, these are contradictory, contradictory states that are somehow existing together, even if we say existing, is, is not really sure that's the right word. But there's there's a contradiction of the the law of the excluded middle. So if a particle has decayed, it can't be not decayed. And if it's not decayed, it can't be decayed. And somehow, before observation, that particle is said to be in a superposed state. It's neither decayed nor not decayed. There's also, when we talk about an individual particle, physicists talk about the wave function of that particle. And that really describes... It's a sort of smudge of probability, a, a probability cloud of where that particle will be and how fast it will be moving and all those other properties that were thought to be independent of the observer. One realizes actually what happens when we're not observing it is all we can talk about is this, this abstract mathematical function in many dimensional space that when you do a certain manipulation of it, you get the probability of finding the particle over there, or the probability of finding it over here, etc., can be calculated. In other words, before we observe it, it doesn't have a definite position. It doesn't have a definite velocity. It doesn't have a definite energy. It doesn't have a definite time at which a certain interaction happened, a certain event happened in its life. It doesn't even have a particular property of being, let's say, a wave or a particle. So this is, this is radical. The whole world of discrete, clear, independently existing phenomena it was decimated and was replaced with something that really the conceptual mind struggles to understand, even though quite sophisticated and very accurate mathematics has come out of it in terms of being able to make these predictions of the probability that we'll find the particle decayed or the probability we'll find it over here as opposed to over there. What actually is going on, independent of the observer, remains something that the conceptual mind really struggles to understand, but it's clear that it's not how we usually think of the world, and it's not how the picture painted by classical science, as developed by Galileo, Descartes, etc., Locke and Newton... It's clearly not that picture that's a reality. So 
Bohr coined this term complementarity, wave and particle, etc., are complementary views of something. But as someone else, David Bell, the physicist, pointed out, that's not really a right word. Complementary is when you look at, let's say, the backside of an elephant and you see a tail and a bum, and you look at the front side and you see a trunk and big ears, and two people who can't see each other you know, on either side of the elephant, get those two views. If they start get a few more people and put those views together, the side view, the front view, then they'll get a composite picture of complementary views, perspectives on the elephant. They can put that together and make sense of it. It fits together. David Bell points out, or pointed out, uh, that actually Bohr should have used the word contradictory. Or rather, that's implicit in what he means by complementary. I I wouldn't go so far as what David Bell said. He had a particular agenda. But really inherent in what Niels Bohr meant by complementary was contradictory. These are not commensurable pictures. We cannot put these pictures together, wave and particle. You cannot put the picture together of it's decayed and it's not decayed, this radioactive atom. So... As I said, the whole idea of inherent existence, an objective existence of phenomena independent of the observer, independent of the way of looking, independent of the way of measuring, that got fractured, it got broken in a very profound way. It became clear that what we see depends on how we look depends on how we measure. What manifests depends on on how we observe. This was also found to extend to the past. So we think, okay, what manifests now depends on how I observe, but what what seems to go even further, what does go even further, is the fact that um, a measurement made now seems to determine what happened in the past. So in other words, say, was this particle a wave or a particle? Did it manifest as a wave or a particle in the past? Can depend on a decision I make about how I, how I look at it, how I observe, how I measure it, actually billions of years later. So how the Big Bang was in its details, for example, is something that depends on how we look now. And that was originally an idea proposed by John Wheeler, the physicist. And recently it's been corroborated in in the laboratory on a smaller scale, but the principle remains. How we look now determines the sense we have of what happened in the past, what was actual in the past. There is no inherently existing past. It also depends on how we look. So you can hear, I hope, just how radical some of these findings are. Victor Mansfield is a, a physicist and also a Buddhist practitioner, in fact, and has written, I think, a couple of books on this kind of stuff. But he basically reports, you know, this, we have an idea that a particle goes from here to there and we can trace its route. This is the flight path, so to speak, from A to B. And we can presume it took that path, or we can observe it taking that path. And actually, that's not the case. He says, Our conception of nature is at fault. The natural yet incorrect assumption that the photon or electron or whatever has a well-defined trajectory, a well-defined path, as it works its way through the 
instrument in the laboratory or whatever it is, whether or not we look and whether or not we know that trajectory, it must have had one. So that's wrong. It's simply wrong to imagine that the past already exists in full detail in the present. So now he's talking about the absence of inherent existence of the past as well. Light or anything anything else, for that matter, does not take on either a wave or a particle nature. This applies not just to light, but to electrons and protons and whatever. Light does not take on either a wave or a particle nature until we decide at the last possible moment, if we like, whether to measure its wave or particle nature. Prior to our choice, it's ill-defined. So the history of the universe is not written out in full detail. Such a fully defined and explicit past is an imaginary construction, a theory, a mental imputation, a giant prejudice. We can normally get away with believing in an objective past that exists in full detail in everyday life. But in the deeper quantum mechanical sense, we must actively participate in defining the universe. It's not sitting out there, so to speak, fully objective, waiting for us to reveal its pre-existent, well-defined, intrinsic nature. So I hope I don't have to spell out the parallels with the, the way we would teach emptiness and ways of looking and the radical dependence on ways of looking. Uh, he goes on, quantum mechanics demands that we abandon some of our most cherished beliefs about the world. Particles and waves do not exist simultaneously in some definite way, uh, only waiting for us to call one of these properties forth. Prior to our measurement, prior to observation, the system is truly indefinite, lacking in independent existence. And there's also a collapse of the whole notion of causality here for different reasons, one, one of which he points out, since causality requires definite objects exchanging energy or exerting forces on each other, is it any wonder that independent existence and causality fall to the ground together in quantum physics? So I hope you get a sense of how radical this is. And some of those ideas about the lack of inherent existence of the past were amplified by Richard Feynman in his theories, some of the history's theories, and in his colleague Murray Gelman with, I think, another guy whose name was Jim Hartle in a theory called the Consistent Histories Approach. Basically, different ways of viewing this fact of the lack of inherent existence of, of the past not just the present, but the past as well. And we could name all, all kinds of findings and observations, startling, radical, upsetting, mind-blowing, etc. Again, many people are familiar with just the fact from Einstein's relativity theory that time, the measurement of time or the observation of what two events are actually happening at the same time, that also is dependent. It doesn't exist independently of the observer. It depends on the relative motion. Um, distance as well. Lengths shorten, uh, etc. So the distance between two objects will be measured differently dependent on the observer. Absolute space, absolute time, these things began to get fractured and then only since then have got even more and more more and more fractured, more and more decimated really as as 
coherent notions or true notions. But not just time and space, but also mass, uh, how heavy a thing is, and the energy of a thing. All this is dependent on the motion. Even more startling, there was a um, theoretical prediction, at least. I haven't measured it yet, but there's a, a strong case for believing that when someone is accelerating, whether they're in a rocket or just being pulled by a rope or whatever, that their observation, if they're, let's say, out, out in interstellar space where there's, um, let's say, a vacuum, um, someone watching them would observe that space to be completely empty. There's no particles in it, there's nothing there. When they're accelerating, their measurements, uh, from their perspective, from their uh, vantage point, reveal not empty space, but a space around them that's full of hot, um, a hot gas of particles. So what's there or what's not there um, depends on uh, is, is relative to, depends on the perspective, on the way of looking. The temperature, the, uh, the actuality of whether there are particles, etc. We could go on. So there's all these um, baffling uh, results. Many um, quantum physicists uh, sometimes just get on with their work of calculating and um, calculating how this atom will decay in this situation or how to build a computer or uh, some other electronic thing or or how to build a bomb or whatever it is um, and really kind of shrug uh, at these uh, facts and observations uh, that go contrary to the sort of normal and established uh, worldview and don't really think about them because you can get on quite well with very accurate uh, calculations and building machines, etc., and engineering, building whatever you want to build, etc., um, without really saying, what is going on here, and uh, what does this do to the sense of reality, etc. For some portion of physicists still, um, since this quantum revolution, um, and for some still, uh, uh, th- th- this really strikes a wrong note, all this. And it sounds very wrong. Most of it sounds very wrong. There's something, something's gone wrong somewhere. There's some fault there. So there's, there is a degree of controversy with that relatively small portion of physicists who actually um, care about what this means and what the implications are for ontology, epistemology, our sense of reality. Um, I'll read you something else from... Um, a physicist called Lee Smolin, if I can find it, where is it? Um, actually, no, this is from uh, Marcus Appleby. And um, so, again, he states, in quantum mechanics, what you see depends on how you look. Again, you recognize even the, the language that he uses is, is uh, very similar to the emptiness language. Make one kind of measurement on the electromagnetic field, and one will obtain results consistent with it being a smoothly varying wave. Make another, different kind of measurement, and one will obtain results consistent with it being a collection of discrete particles. So which of these pictures is the true one? Quantum mechanics declines to say. 
Prabhupada, just as it declines to say what is going on in a physical system when no one is looking. Uh, the fact that the outcome depends on the observer's decision as to which measurement to make casts doubt on the assumption that physics passively records events that would have happened anyway in the absence of experimental intervention. Again, there's this uh, parallel with is, is, our, uh, is our perception as human beings, is it a passive receiving? Is there even such a thing as bare attention? So the parallel. I'm not equating the two, uh, but there's a parallel there. And and he says this represents a subtle. Uh, uh, I don't think it's subtle, but anyway, this represents a subtle but important departure from the Cartesian ideal of total objectivity. Um, the Descartes ideal of the world trundling along like clockwork, etc., independent of the observer, and potentially one can. Um, uh, gather facts of the status uh, about the status of all things um, and Marcus Appleby is reflecting then on the history of physics since the um, quantum revolution in the early part of the 20th century actually the late late uh, 19th century beginning really um, and uh, and in the early part of the 20th century, and saying there are some, including Einstein, who really objected to all this, and uh, said something must be really wrong, and tried to build um, an alternative uh, picture that was more uh, congruent, or, or congruent with the idea of things existing uh, objectively, independently, etc. Um, but he goes on to say, uh, Marcus Appleby, um, no one can say for sure that Einstein's hopes will not be fulfilled at some time in the future, but it does seem to me that the effect of 80 years, uh, so I don't know when he wrote this, but it was pro- it's probably more than 80 years now, the effect of 80 years of theoretical work has been to make these hopes look increasingly forlorn. My own feeling is that an adequate understanding of quantum mechanics ultimately depends not on sophisticated technical developments. In other words, not on new um, formulae or theories, but on some simple conceptual shift, something a little like the perceptual shift which occurs when one looks at a diagram like the Necker cube. You know those diagrams? They're drawings of cubes. Um, on a piece of paper, and when you look at it, you you can kind of see the cube in three dimensions, and then and then you look again, and the whole cube has flipped, like you're looking at it from a, a very different angle, or it's a different cube. Or uh, he says the duck rabbit picture, you know those two pictures, like white on black, uh, or black on white. That that we look at it one way, it looks like a duck. You look at it the other way, um, what was the space around the duck looked like? Looks like a rabbit, etc. Or if you know those uh, Escher, Escher paintings where um, there's a whole sort of complicated scene and it can uh, flip in your in your vision um, to uh, to reveal a very uh, a, a different scene where everything kind of has a different uh, context and geometry and shape in that scene. Um, but in all these, with the Necker cube, with the duck rabbit, and with the Escher, what you can't do is see both at the same time. Um, so he's he's uh, referring to that, um, and then he goes on to say, uh, 
quantum mechanics is not intrinsically weird. It only seems weird because we insist on looking at it through Cartesian spectacles, through the spectacles that we've inherited and and absorbed almost into ourselves um, from the legacy of Descartes and Galileo and and Newton, etc. Mind is separate from matter. Mind can have... um, Matter exists objectively of the the consciousness, the way of looking, the way of observing, and of... um, of, of the mind, etc., and it's possible to get an objective, uh, at least in theory, it's possible to get objective measurements of the factual status of things at any time. But he says the problem is that Cartesian assumptions have become so deeply ingrained in our thinking that it's hard to find the right non-Cartesian spectacles. So there's someone that's actually saying, "There's no," he's not shrugging. And just saying, well, whatever, I don't know, but I can get on with my mathematics and my calculations and my building uh, computers or bombs or whatever. Um, he's not saying, I, I absolutely uh, 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 object to this, uh, these findings. He's saying, what, what we need to object to is our insistence on our inherited and indoctrinated um, worldview about mind, matter, and how the cosmos is. Now, as um, these results uh, presented themselves um, gradually over the years and decades uh, with uh, in investigations in physics, um, at some point stimulated by those uh, puzzling results and by the wrestling of physicists with those results, with those facts and observations, um, Somewhat stimulated by that, but also by other factors, um, philosophers of science also began to question the whole sort of uh, conceptual underpinning of the, the scientific endeavor and approach itself, and whether that might be uh, not quite what it was racked up to be uh, in terms of this notion, uh, racked up to be as a, as uh, as uh, an endeavor, the whole scientific endeavor was um, an approach to truth, a discovery of truth um, independent of any biases or fashions or ways of looking, uh, etc. Or independent of the of a conceptual framework. Um, so gradually, um, over the 20th century and still, um, many philosophers of science from different angles began to even question the whole basis of the scientific method and what its uh, relationship was um, to truth and and its own kind of integrity, etc. So again, if I quote from um, Victor Mansfield here, he has a quite uh, a nice analogy. Um, and... He says, the scientific method, with its demands of reproducibility, completely controlled environment, and quantitative measurement, is only one way of interacting with nature. Science is not a pure revelation of nature in isolation, but rather nature's response to our particular form of questioning. Um, uh, and in exploring the issues of, of measurement in quantum mechanics, um, he says, leads us to realize that science is in part an expression of a unique interaction between nature and ourselves. 
in quantum mechanics, to our great distress, we cannot say, or to our great joy, um, I would add, we cannot say what nature is like independent of that interaction. The scientific method has often been likened to a fishnet that captures certain kinds of aquatic life, but allows many interesting forms to pass right through it. Because an extraordinarily beautiful little fish or alga escapes this net, should we deny its presence or reality in nature's ocean? Such elusive life forms might hold the key to a great deepening of our understanding. Um, He goes on, if we do not understand the limits of the scientific method, then we are doomed to apply it where it hinders our understanding rather than enhances it. So it's not, he's not saying he is a scientist, and I'm not saying certainly either that science is rubbish or anything like this, that it has no applicability, um, that it has no use, that it has no uh, domain of um, relevance and import. But it often gets overextended. So there is um, the overreach of the scientific um, uh, method and um, project, really, in uh, in what I've talked about before, scientism, believing that this scientific method can actually, and the worldview that goes with it, which is actually an archaic worldview at this point, um, belonging to the cl- mode of classical physics, that actually that can explain everything, everything in the universe. Um, but it may very well be that this whole this whole conceptual structure, that whole paradigm, and the way that the scientific method and the scientific approach, actually, as Victor Mansfield points out, it, it only reveals certain things and other other aspects of reality other phenomena in the universe will simply not be picked up just because you're looking with the wrong with the wrong paradigm you're you're coming you uh, you're looking with the wrong um, lenses with the scientific method um, so as i said how would we ever ascertain um as- meaning in the universe or meaning to the cosmos because right from the start such things are barred from the scientific method it's a it's a a methodology of approach that has as a, as i said earlier in the talk is a methodology of approach that actually has then at some point surreptitiously become a conclusion and 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 is claimed as a fact it's overextended its reach um, what we see depends on how we look. What we see, and part of how we look, is the whole conceptual framework or paradigm. So Thomas Kuhn, um, the, the famous philosopher of science, um, wrote that uh, paradigm is prerequisite to perception. A paradigm is prerequisite to perception itself, he wrote. M- meaning that um, we're always approaching uh, phenomena, whatever phenomena, with some kind of conceptual framework and some kind of and informed by some kind of history of what it's important to look for. What are the important questions? What are the salient features here? Um, and and our whole gaze, our whole perspective, uh, is uh, is um, engineered and conditioned and limited uh, 
and empowered both by by that paradigm, whatever that paradigm is. So that what we see, perception, depends on that paradigm to a great extent. And as I said, there is um, quite popular now a certain current, um, um, both among certain scientists but also among many lay people, this kind of overreach um, of the scientific method and an overclaiming um, of its uh, conclusions. One unjustifiably makes certain conclusions about what is established fact in the scientific world. So this is quite common in um, uh, either with some neuroscientists or with people who are sort of um, hovering in interface with the with the world of neuroscience. Some psychologists and different kinds of people, um, uh, when they claim that mind is uh, is and consciousness arises from matter. It can be explained purely in terms of um, neurological electrical impulses in the neurons and synapses, etc., like that. As if that was an established fact and conclusion that had been proven, and it has not. Uh, <clears throat> it absolutely has not. But it's, again, there's this kind of creep um, of uh, claim and uh, etc. there. Um, but there are, as I said, limits to the scientific method that some people are becoming aware of, or have written about from different, all kinds of different angles. <clears throat> if we take that um, example that I just talked about, this idea that actually there is only matter in the universe, uh, it, it can be called a philosophy of materialism or um, less ambiguously a philosophy of physicalism. Um, but it's actually doesn't explain and cannot explain, there's a kind of, actually a kind of quantum leap metaphorically, um, between matter and mind, between uh, the, the properties of matter and the properties of consciousness. And no one has bridged that gap yet. Um, is it possible? I don't know. But it's not, it's not an, as I said, it's not an established fact. It also um, leads to certain strange... Um, paradoxes and kind of contradictions um, for example uh, just reflecting on this if um, <clears throat> if we go with this like entertain this idea of, of a sort of fundamental uh, uh, f- like physicalism in other words there's just there's just um, material entities in the universe um, and uh, w- what happens in consciousness, or the fact of consciousness itself, and the contents of the mind and consciousness, they're essentially just material, because that's really what's real, is matter. If we follow that a little bit, actually then it, it, it kind of, some people actually think this way, or, or articulate this way, then um, mind contents are essentially just, um, I feel happy, it's just some chemicals and some neurological synapses firing. There's no inherent happiness. It's just a kind of illusion, because all that's real, the self isn't real, um, emotions, etc., there's just states of um, material particles. 
What that means is that something like suffering is an illusion as well. It's just um, atoms and molecules um, moving in certain ways, um, interacting in certain ways in the brain. But actually we don't live uh, or think uh, like that. Uh, So even someone who claims that uh, idea as a, an allegiance to that idea as a philosophy doesn't actually live like that or think like that and we don't run our societies that way uh, we at least um, we uh, try to or say we do uh, take human suffering um, seriously in law and in ethics etc but if we really hold to this kind of project of proving everything Um, is just the movement of um, atoms and material particles and their interactions, then it it brings some strange conclusions that aren't actually um, congruent with how we actually live and view the world. We could go a a stage further and say, if if, um, uh, if you say suffering is... um, is kind of real, um, or at least respected, um, even though it's kind of fabricated um, or it's built as a mental construct from simply matter. It's really, in its essence, just matter. Um, There's no person suffering, there's no actual suffering, it's just some neurons creating uh, a certain impression, but, but all that is just matter. If you say that, actually, then um, so is happiness. And so is a sense of beauty, and so is love, and so is um, soulfulness and meaningfulness, and the sense, um, perception, and the conception and thought of divinity. All that, actually, in the same uh, category, if you like, as suffering. They're all um, kind of illusions based on, fabricated by, built by um, some kind of. Um, constellation or state uh, of purely material elements, particles. So all that, happiness, beauty, joy, love, um, soulfulness, meaningfulness, the sense of divinity, are as real or unreal as suffering and pain, even even physical pain. So it's, it's, it's um, uh, atoms uh, uh, don't hurt. There's just atoms uh, in combinations. Um, All these things, then, uh, happiness, beauty, love, suffering, soulfulness, meaningfulness, sense of divinity, the perception of divinity, um, all are merely the uh, movement and interaction of material uh, particles or atomic particles uh, that, that aren't immediately perceived or conceived as such. So there's a conception of them as something different, there's a sense of them as something different, but really what they are is just that. Well, what that does, if I take this strange uh, philosophy of physicalism to its extreme, it actually ends up inverting itself and kind of uh, legitimizing um, all all these uh, areas of experience that are so important to us, happiness, beauty, love meaningfulness, the sense of divinity, soulfulness, um, legitimizing them just as much as we legitimize our uh, suffering and our, our need to care for suffering and we respect for it. 
all are equally um, uh, worth respecting or disrespecting. All have equal value. Perception of divinity, beauty, soul, as much as physical pain. So it's a strange um, philosophy. There is a uh, a kind of uh, hurdle would be an understatement, a, a, abyss um, uh, to straddle, to find the connection between mind and matter. Um, so the this kind of overreach and overclaim of um, people who would, would as they profess allegiance to this kind of total physicalism, um, that's all there is in the universe, uh, <laughs> leads to some strange paradoxes and conclusions. In the world of philosophy in the 20th century, as well as I said, par- paralleling already partly instigated by the, the sort of puzzling and um, shocking results um, from quantum physics. Um, philosophers and philosophers of science in particular started to um, re-question or question the whole relationship of science and the scientific endeavour with truth. Um, so uh, Marshall Walker uh, says, um, <clears throat> no claim is made about the reality of the scientific model, a scientific model. Um, actually, I'm going to read you a few quotes. I'm, I'm getting them from a, a book uh, by Joel Weinzheimer. Um, it's actually to do with Hans-Georg Gadamer, but it doesn't matter. Um, so no claim is made about the reality of the model. So the, the, the link between um, a scientific model or a scientific theory, even when it's been uh, kind of, one has found experimental results that um, are in line with that model, it's still, um, strictly speaking, not, not proffered as a model about reality or truth. And he goes on to say, Marshall Walker goes on to say, the, uh, the sole criterion is successful prediction from the simplest, most convenient, or most satisfying model. Successful prediction rather than truth uh, from the simplest, most convenient, most satisfying model. Um, theories, as Larry Loudon observes in a book called Progress and Its Problems, are just as mo- modest as models. One need not, he says, and scientists generally do not, consider matters of truth and falsity when determining whether a theory does or does not solve a particular empirical problem. Uh, But philosophers, uh, he points out, even if scientists are not concerned with truth, at least don't claim to be concerned with truth, philosophers have been. The preoccupation of classical philosophers of science has been with showing that the methods of science are efficient instruments for producing truth, high probability or even closer approximations to truth to the truth. In this enterprise they have failed dismally, he says. So the criteria of science shift radically. Uh, and uh, Thomas Kuhn again wrote a very influential uh, book 
it's from the 60s perhaps, and, uh, called uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I've talked about it before in, a, in, a past, in some past talks but uh, years ago. But uh, he suggests that we may have to relinquish the notion, explicit or implicit, that changes of paradigm carry scientists and those who learn from them closer and closer to the truth. So the whole idea of science kind of marching onwards closer and closer to the truth and every once in a while we have a shift of conceptual framework like for instance pre and post uh, Einstein's theories of relativity the whole idea that, that that's then closer to the truth is, is very questionable to him how the sure and steady advance of science toward the truth suddenly degenerated into a rout is most clearly explained by Imre Lakatos who says for centuries knowledge meant proven knowledge proven either by the power of the intellect or by the evidence of the senses. The proving power of the intellect or the senses was questioned by the skeptics more than 2,000 years ago. So it goes back to, to the Greek skeptic philosophers, etc., who questioned this. But then he says, but they were browbeaten into confusion by the glory of Newtonian physics. As I said, this revolution, the scientific revolution, was so dazzling in its power to predict and to build technology and gain power over nature, etc., that the philosophical skeptics um, were, were kind of silenced. Then he continues, Einstein's results again turned the tables, and now very few philosophers or scientists still think that scientific knowledge is, or can be, proven knowledge. But few realize that with this, the whole classical structure of intellectual values falls in ruins and has to be replaced. One cannot simply water down the ideal of proven truth. Something, again, very fundamental has been decimated, some vessel has been broken in the whole structure and the whole idea of what science is doing and and how it's progressing and what its venture is in regards to something called truth. The most clear example of how this whole notion of truth was brought into question was actually with the history of of Newton's theories of gravity and mechanics. So they were immensely successful and very accurate in terms of their predictions and their power, etc. And then Einstein came along, particularly with his general theory of relativity, and a completely different idea of what gravitation was. A completely different idea of space and time, etc. And of course, together with that, the the mathematical equations that describe that theory and carry its predictive power that are then regarded as fundamental and universal laws. Laws of the cosmos. Very different. So the two theories had different ideas, models of gravity and what was happening there and what it was and how it worked and different equations that described that process mathematically. Some of the calculations about observed measurements will be just slightly different 
coming from Einstein's theory, but the sort of fundamental edifice and ideas of what is going on, in other words, the model of the universe, the model of reality is going on, is radically different in Einstein's theory of, of gravity. So he says, Newton's, the best corroborated of all scientific theories, turned out to be at best incomplete and at worst false because it was superseded by Einstein's theory. Then it remains in question now whether Einstein's hypotheses uh, become also superseded or contradicted in the future. And even if they are corroborated, they should not be called true, because you never know uh, whether a whole very radically different model or theory comes along. Again, it might have just minutely differing predictions in some context about what we would observe. But the whole model of what actually is going on is radically different. So this all calls into question, like, well, what exactly is the relationship of scientific theories, even when they seem to have been corroborated by experiment and observation many times? What exactly is their relationship with truth and reality? So all all this questioning is very much alive still in the world of philosophy of science. Again, to quote Thomas Kuhn, he wrote, the developmental process described in this essay, in this, uh, he's talking about his essay, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, um, has been a process of evolution from primitive beginnings, a process whose successive stages are characterized by an increasingly detailed and refined understanding of nature. But nothing that has been or will be said makes it a process of evolution towards anything. The evolution of science is not an evolution towards something called truth or a truthful representation of reality, in his view. He's just calling that all into question. Inevitably, that lacuna, that that gap, will have disturbed many readers. We are all deeply accustomed to seeing science as the one enterprise that draws constantly nearer to some goal set by nature in advance. But need there be any such goal? Can we not account for both science's existence and its success in terms of evolution from the community state of knowledge at any given time? Does it really help to imagine that there is some one full, objective, true account of nature, and that the proper measure of scientific achievement is the extent to which it brings us closer to that ultimate goal. So you, you can hear how radical these questions are to those of us who have grown up with a certain view of science, and that, and that includes our, our contemporary culture. It's a philosopher called Grandin, Jean Grandin, and he talks about a conception of truth in philosophy which is different than the normal conception of or current, one current conception of truth in philosophy that's different than the normal conception of truth uh, and its relationship to science. He writes, in dialectic and that kind of philosophy, thought continually takes up on new forms without there being postulated unconditionally a process of successive approximation to truth. Same thing that Thomas Kuhn is saying. But then he adds, in philosophical hermeneutics, um, in that branch of philosophy, that approach to philosophy, this infinite process is designated as, in quotes, truth. So truth becomes, uh, the whole notion of truth um, 
becomes in, in these uh, philosophers' uh, approaches something very different from a kind of fact which one either arrives at or doesn't, represents uh, accurately or doesn't. It's a process, and it's infinite, and it's open-ended. Uh, very, very different um, conception. There's another uh, uh, re- related debate about the nature of um, scientific theory to truth, or, uh, and uh, there's two, among others, there's two sort of um, theories of truth, if you like, or theories of theories of truth. One is called the correspondence model, the correspondence theory of truth. So this theory... Um, uh, in what it depicts, in the model it lays out, corresponds to reality. In other words, reality is like this, and the model uh, mirrors it. And that's what truth is. That's what truth is in a, in science. That's what truth is in theory or anything else. Um, in kind of competition with that theory, there's what's called a coherence theory of truth, which abandons the idea of this kind of um, act possibility of, an accu- of ascertaining whether we have an accurate representation, accurate and final representation of truth, and um, or even if we're moving towards that accurate and final representation, as someone like Karl Popper would claim, and replaces it with what's called the coherence theory of truth. And, and so that, what that really means is that um, the different components of this theory, whatever it is, this model of the universe, they, they cohere. They, they um, make sense together. They fit with each other. And they fit with other things uh, that we know or other models. And if you have a coherent theory, or the more coherent the theory, um, the, the, the more we, we are entitled to call it true. But that's a different claim than saying it corresponds to some reality. This now is a picture of reality, an accurate uh, replica of reality or representation of reality. So all this has gone on in um, 20th century and 21st century philosophy. Just the whole notion of truth, and in particular of science's relation to truth, has, has also been... Uh, called into question, decimated, opened up, uh, etc. So, um, over the 20th century, let's say, and, um, and beyond, um, partly uh, stimulated by these findings in uh, physics and the um, theories of quantum physics and relativity and the whole revolution in, in physics that happened in the 20th century. Partly stimulated by that um, and their implications for the suggested implications that there is actually not an objective, independent existence of things, uh, of matter or anything. Partly also um, there, so, so there was th- that current which, which stimulated that thought. Partly also there was, as I said, um, uh, reflecting and stimulated by, by those uh, findings, there were philosophers of science who um, began questioning 
the limits of the scientific method, but also, um, more, even more fundamentally, the, the science's relationship with truth, per se, and what truth actually means. And, um, does science, in fact, reveal or even approach, uh, approximate truth? Um, there were also other movements in philosophy that had, uh, on, the, on the face of it, no, nothing. They weren't propelled by scientific discoveries. There were other considerations, um, political considerations, uh, purely philosophical considerations, linguistic considerations, cultural considerations, historical considerations, etc. Um, certainly, in the 20th century, even before that, starting with Nietzsche. Um, into Heidegger, Derrida, um, but but you could say even back to Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant questioning uh, the uh, the possibility, questioning that it is possible for us to have access to an objective, independent truth, and questioning the kind of uh, hubris that would assume that we either do or can. And so there's a whole current in, uh, in Western philosophy, certainly, uh, that, that question that, depending on where you start that current historically, doesn't matter, but um, uh, kind of reached its zenith, in a way, in uh, maybe in the 80s or 90s, where sometimes if you pick up um, any article, whether it's philosophy or... Um, articles on comparative religion, even or uh, all, all kinds of things, influenced by that by that trend in philosophy um, to uh, kind of denigrate any assumption uh, of reaching some kind of objective truth about anything, um, and to denigrate even the possibility of doing so. Um, sometimes it's almost comical picking up some articles, they, they seem to sort of start with a, with a sort of, um, I'm on the right side, I don't claim any, anything about absolute truth, and uh, of course, of, of course I wouldn't say anything like that, or, or, or something... Um, don't don't shoot me. I'm on the right team, kind of thing. Um, so there's that whole current. But again, if we, what's interesting to me is that um, one of the things that's interesting is um, even with those philosophers who um, uh, say. That, 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 that there is no access to truth, or there is no truth, or um, we don't presume that, um, it's not possible, etc. We don't um, postulate any kind of realism, etc. How easily and surreptitiously, surreptitiously it sneaks back in, or it is sneak, sneaked back in. Um, uh, or it's, it's actually never really been abandoned. And... Um, the philosopher or whomever has not even realized that um, they haven't abandoned the notion of a basic reality or an ultimate truth um, in this or that area or domain of of being or existence. Um, Now, that uh, definitely applies to some 
physicists who work uh, in, in the area even of quantum physics, etc., um, as I mentioned earlier, but even more so the philosophers who sort of um, tend to emphasize this point or this disclaimer uh, and um, pass judgment even on, on even the notion of the possibility of, of some kind of access to uh, an ultimate truth or a, a principal truth. Um, still, it, it sneaks back it back in, or it uh, actually was was never really abandoned in in some area or another. So um, again, if we go back to the philosopher J. N. Findlay, who it, it, he's a very interesting and unusual character in twentieth century philosophy, in that totally against the stream and almost in isolation, it seems he did postulate ultimate truths, uh, kind of mystical absolutes. Um, there's some parallels with what we might call emptiness, but it's really something different. I may hopefully come back to this uh, later in this talk. Um, but uh, so he he was criticised uh, uh, by anyone who bothered to pay attention to what he was uh, proposing and writing about, working as he was very much on the sidelines of the academic world. Um, but he was criticised for these uh, reasons, and um, saying, uh, people said, uh, you know, what you're saying is meaningless or self-contradictory or this or that. Um, and, and he wrote, whether this is true or not about what I'm proposing, um, uh, self-contradictory and empty notions, that's what he was partly what he was being accused of. He says, self-contradictory and empty notions play a vast part in human experience and attitude. There's a lot of wisdom in what he's saying. This is self-contradictory and empty notions play a vast part in human experience and attitude. And this is certainly true of humanity's limiting notion of absolutes. As I said, he was interested in, in a certain kind of absolute, a kind of mystical absolute, um, and then he continues, even philosophies which repudiate absolutes in their logic and have professedly built up radically contingent, value-free systems generally smuggle in absolutes of some sort. Matter, logical space, the totality of atomic state of affairs, etc., etc. The paradoxicality and ineffability of mystical absolutes is simply a logical consequence of there being absolutes at all. So, two main points there. This One is that self-contradictory and empty notions play a huge part in human experience and attitude. Very, very important point, I think. And secondly, um, that even when people, as I pointed out, say, well, we don't believe in absolutes, we don't believe in any ultimate reality, basically, um, usually, implicitly, they do. Um, whether that's um, matter, that's the most uh, common one, I suppose, uh, etc., the totality of atomic state of affairs, etc. So this is real, this is the, the reality, the basic reality. So that's extremely common. And we see that in all kinds of contexts, not just philosophy, <coughs> academic philosophy, but um, all kinds of contexts. And even, um, I think I've said this somewhere or other in talks, you know, sometimes teaching about emptiness, and, and then someone will say, oh, I, I really like that teaching, it makes a lot of sense, and, and then they will say something about 
did you know this or this about the brain uh, and how it's totally in line with what you're saying, how the brain actually processes information so that um, we can have different perspectives or there are perceptual illusions, etc., etc. Or they might want to try and explain uh, the whole um, notion of fabrication, etc., from a neurological perspective. Um, what's virtually explicit in 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 that um, uh, in that a- a- approach or suggestion is then that um, in a way neurology and neuro uh, neurons uh, and matter uh, are more fundamental um, even than emptiness or than um, fabrication etc they are what fabricate they are what um, create uh, perceptual illusions etc um, and so there's a causality there resting on uh, on on the neurons um, and as as I mentioned before you know uh, no one's actually proved that causality it may be that the involvement of neurological networks is a an indispensable part um, of perception and, func- and mental functioning and mind, of course, but um, uh, actually what's proved so far is just that there's a corollary, there's a corresponding neurological f- function um, that's um, maybe necessary, but not necessarily sufficient for mind. Um, but still, what's um, more, more important, I think, right now to say is that um, there's a kind of uh, again, smuggling back in, and here's about teachings of emptiness, one reads them uh, about fabrication, etc., and then smuggles back in a more fundamental, supposedly more fundamental notion of brain, of uh, neurophysiology, of, of matter. Um, forgetting, uh, for instance, that matter itself is empty, is not um, either from the results from physics or from a deconstruction based on emptiness, etc. Um, matter itself is empty. Time is empty. Space is empty. Um, and without time and space, as we alluded, as we mentioned earlier in the talk, you, you can have no notion of causality. Um, so uh, causality depends on on time. Um, in in the teachings of emptiness that I would, um, uh, you know, favor, uh, uh, fabrication itself is not really an ultimate truth. You cannot explain perception ultimately. Uh, at a certain conventional level, you can explain perception as fabrication and how that works phenomenologically, etc. Um, but it's not an ultimate truth because... Um, uh, causality is empty and not ultimately true. Time is empty, and therefore the, the time in which fabrication happens is empty. And what is fabricated is empty, and what fabricates is empty. So any um, model uh, or proposition that puts, uh, that retains a kind of fundamental basis, a place of uh, n- n- neurophysiology or matter as a fundamental basis actually is insufficient um, in, in my mind for uh, 
uh, it falls down because time is empty, because matter is empty, because space is empty, because causality is empty. Um, so this is that would be one very common instance. But again, in the um, in the realm of uh, professional academic philosophers, it's it's very common to kind of um, peer through the cracks. If you're, or, or it leaks out, maybe that's a better way of putting it, their ontological commitments and allegiances and preferences uh, leak out despite their professing uh, there's no ultimate reality, we're not postulating any realism, there's no privileged point of view, there's no, in other words, there's no privileged way of looking, etc., etc. There's no one correct perspective on things. Um, so, for example, Richard Rorty, he would say that kind of thing a lot. He would write about that kind of thing a lot. And then it would slip out something like the universe is just made up of a purposeless movement of, of atoms or something like that. Um, and it's almost like it's, uh, it, it, it's caught in the, uh, in, in the cracks of his, of his argument. Uh, so he's too smart to, to say it head on, but when he's kind of not paying enough attention to what he's writing, perhaps, it, it stumbles out. Okay, that's actually the view. Um, or um, Foucault, Michel Foucault, for example, wrote, uh, we should not imagine that the world presents us with a legible face. We must conceive discourse as a violence that we do to things. So we must conceive uh, conceiving as a violence that we do to things. But, of course, how do we do a violence to things unless things are a certain way in reality prior to our discourse, prior to our conceiving? Do you understand? So the whole notion of doing a violence to things presumes that things already exist in a certain way that we can do violence for. It's built like this, we smash it or we distort it by our discourse, by our conceiving, by our perspectives, etc. So even these champions or apparent champions of non-realism are often betrayed by uh, their their allegiances, their predispositions, their um, preferences and, if you like, uh, agendas are, are betrayed um, in the in, in in the cracks of their of their uh, writings and language. Um, <clears throat> as I said, all this talk of uh, non-reality and this kind of um, dismissing and uh, uh, pulling tearing down the um, assumption. Um, of the attainment or even the possibility of attainment of some kind of um, privileged perspective or um, ultimate truth or about anything at all reached its zenith, that whole um, movement in philosophy, perhaps in the 80s and 90s, following the writings of Derrida and others, and uh, what was called deconstruction in philosophy. And <coughs> Cyril O'Regan, uh, wrote about this and pointed out, I think, really importantly, um, he said, the art of deconstruction, that whole movement to deconstruct arguments that propose or that seem to propose some kind of privileged perspective or or um, truth about anything at all, 
um, that whole movement and the art of deconstruction in philosophy is a serious play that shows, unveils, uncovers the hubris of a discourse that would be complete. In other words, that you can get this complete perspective, whether it's about anything, um, a scientific perspective, a perspective on matter, on mind, on philosophy, on psychology, on culture, on ethics, on whatever. It goes on. Taken at its word, deconstruction cannot indulge in statement, meta-description, and, least of all, in prescription. In other words, if you really, if you really trust what deconstruction is um, saying, proposing, and attempting to do, then it must deconstruct itself. And um, it can't then uh, offer a prescription. You should look like this. You should look without positing an ultimate reality. That would contradict itself. Um, you sh- uh, or to, to, to consider itself a more privileged perspective would be to contradict itself. So he continues, that despite itself, it manifests a tendency to do so, um, to indulge in statement, meta-description, and prescription, uh, being prescriptive, is evident, and then he cites uh, a deconstructive uh, philosopher, theologian, Mark Taylor, um, and he says, a particular work called Erring clearly indulges in an evaluative language of prescription and proscription, recommending this and prohibiting that. Um, he says, you don't, I'm paraphrasing now a little bit, he says, you don't find that so much in the work of Derrida, though even in Derrida's case, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that if he thinks his own proposal, uh, he considers his own proposal to be right in the way the ontotheological tradition is not. So the ontotheology is, I think it was Heidegger's word, or maybe Derrida, I can't remember where it started, this postulate of like, this is real, this is true, and this has privileged, almost divine status, onto, from onto, ontology, theo, theo, from God. Um, this perspective, or this statement, um, is is true, is real, or, or is privileged. Um, so, Cyril O'Regan is pointing out, even in Derrida's case, um, all of these guys, there's, there's an, uh, they think that their proposal uh, uh, is, is right in the way that um, other proposals, say for example the philosophy of Hegel, which O'Regan is actually writing about in this case, um, uh, is not. And then he continues, openness, this openness of point of view is a prescription, a metaphysical or quasi-metaphysical recommendation. Closure, the, the, the opposite, to say we've arrived at a truth now, this is now uh, the, the, the best perspective we, we know, or, or whatever it is. Closure, a proscription, a prohibition, a quasi-metaphysical no-no. Deconstructionist use of the antithetical pair closure and openness has to be seen as thoroughly evaluative. So there's a kind of um, self-contradictoriness uh, that runs through um, uh, postmodernism and that whole philosophy, um, among other problems. What is going on here? Why? Why is this so? Um, you know, I think this is really interesting, and um, uh, again, if we come back to uh, Jane Findlay and um, something he wrote, uh, however much we may affect interest in the architecture of nature, 
in other words, in, in science, etc. Or its various departments. Or in the various detached systems of ideas which proliferate abundantly in their glassing compartments, in other words, in philosophical ideas. It is plain that we cannot achieve clarity in regard to any of them without achieving clarity as to our empirical, conceptual and linguistic approaches to them. Without due study of these, we are more than likely to see our own thought habits and speech habits and problems merely written large on the cosmos. And there is, in fact, no easier way to fall victim to what is arbitrary and personal than to set out uncritically to be objective and impersonal. So again, he's saying something about the whole approach that we have to, we have to actually become more conscious of our whole way of approaching these, uh, whatever, whatever questions we're investigating, whatever areas we're questioning. And without that consideration of our approach, our leanings, our frameworks, uh, empirical conception and linguistic, we're just going to um, project our, uh, our habits, really, onto the cosmos, <coughs> inner and outer. So our approaches... Our frameworks constitute, in a way, or at least at least shape uh, a part of what fabricates what we then conclude. Our approaches and frameworks, our paradigms, as um, uh, Tom, like Thomas Kuhn quote, a paradigm is prerequisite to perception itself. Uh, we can broaden as, as we explore this more and more. We can broaden his statement beyond perhaps uh, the limits of what he initially meant by it. And then, of course, whatever we're already assuming, and what we might call ground assumptions, that sneak in. So I mentioned that uh, René Descartes was is regarded <coughs> as one of the principal founders of the scientific method, and one of his main ideas, uh, which many of you will know, of course, is is it, the question: Is it possible to um, place our method of inquiry and method of investigation and our reasoning on a really solid, clean foundation. Um, A foundation we can trust, but also a foundation that doesn't drag in um, distortions, assumptions, um, uh, that that, that kind of baggage that would prevent a clear and objective um, uh, seeing of the truth. And so that was the idea, and then he uh, postulated, well, what's the, what's the one, is there one thing I can trust? And he dismissed this and this and that and this, and he came down to this, I think, uh, therefore I am cogito ego sum. This is the one thing I can trust, because he might very much question his conclusion there, but at least the principles. There's one thing I can trust, and on that one foundation, supposedly, I I then proceed, and whatever whatever follows from that is acceptable. So it's what he would call uh, a radical doubt underpins the... Uh, so-called Cartesian method, the scientific method. You start, you start with this radically doubting everything. Is there one thing that's beyond doubt? And then build things on that foundation. And that's supposed to be uh, uh, as pure and clean and objective 
um, distortion-free, value-free, assumption-free, um, desire-free, etc. method to follow. However, uh, as a number of philosophers have pointed out, um, since then, um, there's something a little fishy here when you uh, read his work and regard his opus. There's more than one thing, but one thing I'd like to focus on right now. So Charles Pierce, um, Charles Sanders Pierce was a um, quite uh, influential American philosopher. Um, and you know, I'm quoting uh, Weinsheimer again, and he said... Um, Pierce observes that no one who follows the Cartesian method will ever be satisfied unless he has formally recovered all those beliefs which in form he has given up. In other words, um, someone professing to follow this method of radical doubt and a kind of um, uh, antiseptic cleaning of all the mechanisms of, of inquiry and cogitation and deduction and observation, someone who's professing to follow that will kind of try and recognize what they believe, try and sweep it to one side, um, in, that's the, uh, the beliefs which inform he has given up. Give them up. Give, give those beliefs up. Um, but then actually there's something operating that won't ever be satisfied unless he has formally recovered all those beliefs which inform he has given up. In other words, then you have a process where actually what you're trying to do is recover those very beliefs that you had made a big deal of putting aside. And Weitzheimer goes on to add uh, to Pierce's comment, It is not by accident that in matters of faith, for example, however heretical the Cartesian method, its results were quite orthodox and traditional. You understand? Um, so here's this very uh, uh, heretical and kind of radical methodology of, of, of inquiry and epistemology and etc. But he ends up with, uh, in, in certain areas at least, he ends up with just exactly the conclusions that were that were already there, the assumptions that he was already bringing in uh, to to um, that inquiry. They were quite orthodox and traditional. Meinstein says, the method itself seems a circular detour, less an exercise of self-sovereign reason than of rationalization. So there's a big trumpet blowing that, okay, we're going to be completely independent in our reasoning and our observation, independent of any influences and conditionings and assumptions and all that, as I said, distortions, wishes, desires. Um, but, and that would constitute so-called self-sovereign reason if there even is such a thing. And uh, uh, the point is, actually, he's just rationalizing uh, what he already was taught in childhood and, and had believed. goes on to say, Descartes himself does not so much make a radical beginning as justify the beliefs that he had accepted as true from an early age. Um, so Pierce makes that observation, by the time he makes that observation, and it was... Um, Heidegger also, in his um, being and time, made the same conclusions about Descartes. In other words, little time passes and other other thinkers, other people, 
look back on on that proclamation of Descartes, this is what I'm doing, this is how it works, uh, and shine a light on it, and it doesn't look quite as um, spick and span clean and pure as uh, Descartes presumed it was or claimed that it was. Dragging in, dragging back in assumptions, or really they were never removed in the first place. And and then there's a whole question which I've touched on before about motivation, like what is actually uh, um, guiding us or pushing or pulling us, propelling us um, to in one direction or another um, in regard to questions of ontology and epistemology of reality and knowledge, etc. So uh, it's almost like we we bring back in a consideration of psychology. You know, what's happening psychologically for this person or that person that they're actually looking to make a certain conclusion, then indeed they do make a certain conclusion. It was they end up with the conclusion that they had been wanting um, to make anyway. Um, So, um, there was a guy called... um, Fiertz, I think his name was, and I think he wrote a biography about Newton, uh, the physicist Isaac Newton, and um, he points out, if I can find this passage, uh, he points out the source of Newton's deepest ideas about nature, Fiertz found. Uh, this is from an article, I'm, I'm quoting now from an article by Christ, Christian von Bayer. Um, uh, the source of Newton's deepest ideas about nature, Fiertz found, were his religious beliefs. Absolute space, for example, is a manifestation of God's ubiquity, of God just being everywhere, totally everywhere, um, in, if you like, equally and totally everywhere. God's ubiquity. Um, absolute time is an expression of God's eternity. This suggestion is not introduced idly or speculatively, speculatively, but explained explicitly and in detail detail in the Principia, uh, Newton's great, great work on physics. In Newton's words, translated from the Latin, God lasts forever and he is present everywhere, and by existing forever and everywhere, he has established duration and space, eternity and infinity. Uh, What's more, the idea is supported by biblical references. For example, Newton quotes St. Paul in Acts, um, For in him we live and move, in him we exist. God is space, in other words. What could be plainer? This is actually an old Jewish tradition. The The word makom for space is one of God's names in the Jewish tradition. While God's nature appears as space and time, his dominion appears in the form of natural laws. And the most obvious effect of his actions is gravity. So, Christian von Bayer uh, goes on, It seems that for Newton, the purpose of physics was not at all to reveal the mechanism of the world, as his followers, down to our time, imagined. Rather, it was to demonstrate God's influence on the world. Since God is utterly incomprehensible to us, the laws of nature, such as universal gravitation, which Newton came up with the first real theory about that, are incomprehensible too. Anything we can say about God is merely symbolic, 
and therefore the laws of nature are symbolic too. But basically, and you can point this out for other physicists like Kepler and, and, and others, um, what's driving the motivation there was actually uh, a contrary to what many people suppose was actually a religious sensibility and a religious agenda. And he wanted to prove something about God. Now, Newton was actually clear and explicit and very open about that connection, about what drove him, about uh, his his reasoning. What's, uh, I think, much more problematic and kind of insidiously dangerous is when the um, both the assumptions of reality and the motivations are not uh, explicit when they're actually implicit. And this is what we get a lot today, and particular again in the uh, discourse and philosophies or various branches of uh, discourse of um, secular, uh, the kind of secular worldview. Um, because um, many of the assumptions, conscious or unconscious, on which the conceptual framework and worldview, the Weltanschauung of secular modernism rest, are not made explicit. Uh, they're, in a way then, the, uh, the assertions and the views are, are kind of dogmatic because they're not explicit. So if you lay something out, there's a way that um, it's less dogmatic. People can say, well, I disagree with that bit. If you hide it, consciously or unconsciously, it becomes a kind of dogma. People, uh, it's not quite clear what things are resting on or what to, uh, uh, what to question. And then even more so with the motivation, uh, which Jen, I've picked up this point before and uh, in the past, um, why is it um, that I'm uh, presenting a picture of the cosmos like this or like that? Why is it I um, am so keen to insist on a meaningless cosmos as, a, as, a, as almost a dogmatic point of certainty? Or as if it's been proved somehow? What's going on for me psychologically? Why is it that I desire that kind of cosmos? Uh, now this applies um, also to, uh, to any other view. So the, 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 this question about um, motivation, for example, and assumption, these two questions about motivation and underlying assumption and, and approach, I'm going to say three, uh, three considerations. That applies also to the view of radical emptiness. It applies if we are kind of in favor of or trying to present, present uh, notions of spiritual absolutes or metaphysical realities or whatever. So I think it's really important to realize this, the place of agenda and motivation, which is very often uh, certainly not made explicit and very often not even conscious. I've talked about this before. What kind of um, self and world do I want to kind of um, paint for myself and then inhabit and, and why? What's going on there? whichever way it is. What's my predisposition? So, yes, what are my assumptions that I'm not questioning and I'm not even uh, uh, sharing with others? I'm assuming this and this. Uh, What is in the whole framework of the way I'm approaching things linguistically and conceptually? And what's going on in my motivation? 
and why, about how I want to uh, conjure the sense of the stage, the theatre of self and world. So really important, I think, to realise this, all of us, all of us, whatever our inclinations and hopes and allegiances are. To realise this and to admit it, bring that into the discourse. Then it's almost like then a whole other level um, of well honesty, transparency, uh, but also range and openness and complexity comes into the um, these kind of debates and arguments and and this kind of discourse and, and thinking. To throw in even more um, kind of um, jittery making or uh, uh, jittery making considerations and observations into the mix and things that shake shake us up a little bit and shake up the ground, um, make it all a little bit kind of less certain, uh, certainly more complex, is also, I think, to, to point out that, um, I don't know how to say it quite, epistemology is personal, it seems to me. So I've noticed, um, particularly, it's particular. Let's say in the area when, when teaching emptiness um, uh, or with pe- to people or talking with them about emptiness and about um, if they're on this journey of deepening understanding and exploration of emptiness, what is it that actually gives a person a deep conviction in emptiness? Uh, and what what's interesting to me is that. It varies, so not everyone will be convinced by the same uh, either meditative uh, experiences or reasoning underpinning meditative experiences or philosophical analyses or whatever it is. Um, It's quite individual. What makes this person convinced at a very deep level of their being that they would uh, build their life around it and stake their life on it and uh, that it affects their life deeply. What makes this person convinced deeply, let's say, about emptiness is very different than what makes this person deeply convinced about emptiness. And yet they both um, have a deep conviction, a deep, ingrained, uh, um, passionate and powerfully effective and liberating conviction in emptiness. Um, this, uh, this I think, I think again, just observing over the years from, from teaching is uh, is is really interesting. Um, for some, for for person A and person B, in those in those examples, what was convincing for person A is totally unconvincing for person B, and vice versa. So, uh, there's a kind of, um, and when it comes down to uh, how we're going to live how we're going to orient to ethics, how we're going to uh, make choices in our life, what kind of liberation we're living out, then um, epistemology has to be personal in the sense that it has to, has to, I have to trust it. I have to trust this knowledge or this insight or this reasoning or that uh, perception or whatever it is. Um, it has to be personal. And then when I observe uh, what makes a difference for people, that actually they they have this uh, personal sense of um, 
something that they can trust. It, it really varies quite a lot. So I think that's very interesting. And as I pointed out, I think, in one of the um, earlier talks in the series, um, it might be for some people, if we just talk about emptiness for a, for a second, that um, they are, in fact, taking the uh, teachings of emptiness and the conclusions of emptiness um, and the ontology of emptiness um, they're taking it on board out of trust for um, some authority um, or a particular teacher or sometimes it's me or wh- whoever else or some teacher from history, etc. Um, what's interesting in Tibetan Buddhist teachings is they, they have a whole, and it goes back to uh, uh, Mahayana Indian Buddhism, is there was a whole exploration of these questions of epistemology. Well, how, what knowledge can we trust? How do we, um, if you have a certain experience in meditation, how do you know whether you can trust that experience or not? If you're um, walking down the street, how do you know what you can trust in terms of your perception? Um, if you're, uh, you know, reading um, spiritual scriptures or whatever. How do you know what you can trust, etc., etc.? And so they they really try to explore and expound and expand this whole area and these questions of epistemology. And one of the categories is of of uh, valid epistemology is scriptural authority. In other words, you can trust this because it says it in that book, and that book's a good book. Um. So it, it might be easy for us sometimes, uh, for some of us, to kind of poo-poo that. But, uh, again, what's interesting to me is just uh, what a range there is in personal epistemology. In other words, what makes a difference for different people? What really makes a deep difference? So that they, as I said, build their life, their choices, their risk-taking, etc. Um, on, uh, on what basis? On, on a basis that's uh, that's personal for them. It, it has to be personal to have that kind of faith in it. Because when we talk about epistemology, we're talking about what, what knowledge can I trust? It means it's a foundation. I, I dare to put my foot there because the ground is solid. That kind of knowledge. And so most of us, in a way, have that, have that kind of um, trust of authority, even though you might... Some of us might hear what I just said about scriptural authority and the teachings about that in, in Buddhism. And uh, a lot of us are much more familiar with the Buddhist teachings of don't don't trust anything, come and see the Dhamma is ahipassiko, etc. To be, uh, you know, come, to be seen for oneself, come and see for yourself, etc. Um, but actually there's this whole other teaching of scriptural authority um, as well. And most of us have that uh, relationship with authority and trusting the knowledge, of course, with, with scientific authority, medical authority, and these kinds of things. So even though you might be a little suspicious of that kind of notion of scriptural authority, we have it in lots of areas in life. We have to, because there's there's too much knowledge there for one human being. And so sometimes, um, uh, with all this, it... Uh, it might be that, um, for example, people practicing sensing the soul and imaginal practice, etc., and and don't feel any need for ontological or epistemological explanations or clearings or groundings or legitimizations. And someone might say, I don't know, someone might say of those people, they're just willy-nilly trusting 
these images and these strange sort of spiritual or so-called soulful perceptions of things, this sensing with soul or whatever, um, why don't they question the reality of that? How do they legitimize that? Are they, are they not lazy? Are they not being lazy or sloppy? Perhaps someone would think that from the outside, but if you stand back and look at the whole picture um, and say, well, maybe not any more than most uh, human beings, who are many now, who have, say, heard or read about, um, for instance, the radical ruptures and conundra and shifts of ontology and epistemology um, affected or uh, implied very strongly by the m- modern physics of the last 120 years. In other words, as I said, we hear this, whatever, it doesn't seem, all this stuff from physics and what it implies, it doesn't seem to um, affect much uh, deeply in many people at all, most often even the physicists themselves. Um, but certainly for the lay people, and, and for some physicists as I point out, there's not a lot of um, uh, kind of then vigorous and energetic pursuit of these questions of ontology and epistemology. So someone who picks up uh, and who has an affinity with and wants to um, explore and has faith in um, sensing the soul and that kind of thing, uh, explorations, uh, you know, they might not be being any more lazy than any of the rest of us who don't pick up any of these other, um, you know, questions and the conundra of... um, ontology and epistemology, they're actually uh, the, 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 the heritage, the legacy of our, uh, of our culture, of our Western culture at the present. And something I also pointed out, um, I think several times, and it, it's also in, in the book that I wrote about emptiness, seeing the freeze, um, when you really start to think about epistemology, um, you start to realize that all and any epistemology, all and any um, sense of I know this, or this is a kind of knowledge I can trust, um, or I, it, you start to see at some point, it's always at some level down, uh, it's going to be resting on, on assumptions, and at some point you'll reach an assumption that's basically unproven. And so if you say to someone, oh, you, oh, you believe that about what knowledge you can trust or, or what's real? And say, well, why do you believe that? And, and you pursue that question. And they say, because of this. And say, why do you believe, well, why do you believe this then? And they say, because of that. And say, why do you believe that? Because of, uh, and at some point, they'll just have to say, I just believe it. Um, and uh, whatever reason they give, you can come up with another question, and at some point it will just reach a kind of bedrock of uh, an unproven assumption. And I say all and any epistemology, all and any um, choice, if you like, whether it's conscious or unconscious, about what knowledge we can trust, and then by implication because they imply each other as subjects, the ontology as well, the notion of what's real. Uh, woven in together, all and any epistemology and ontology rest on unproven assumptions at some point. And uh, and so there's a parallel, at least a parallel, if not an equation here, with um, with the situation in 
philosophical hermeneutics uh, and um, and also uh, the hermeneutics of literature and, and all that. So J. Hillis Miller wrote, um, Whenever the interpreter thinks he has reached back to something original, behind which it is impossible to go, he finds himself face to face with something which is already an interpretation. So there's... Uh, we cannot kind of get to the bottom of, of this. At some point... Um, uh, Certainly, as I said, all and any epistemology rests on unproven assumptions. And again, can we realize this? Can we admit it? Do we even admit it to people that we disagree with? So, it's complex. All the things that come in here, historically, psychologically, um, conceptually philosophically to as I pointed out earlier to kind of actually stay true um, or, or stay um, to have integrity and thoroughness and uh, steadiness and comprehensiveness with that um, uh, assertion that there's no privileged perspective that one is not asserting any ultimate truth or that it's not possible to do so, etc. That's actually very difficult. And so there's um, slips and distortions and blind spots uh, that come in here for all kinds of reasons. Gaps, lacunae, uh, shaky shaky foundations, questionable uh, building structures. Uh, it's difficult. Um... Sometimes it's just a lack of self-awareness. Sometimes it's sometimes it may be even lack of honesty, self-honesty and honesty with others. I don't know. The, the position of what we might call deep emptiness, that there really is no uh, ultimate reality, that there is not um, a, a privileged perspective. That's difficult. That's difficult to realize and difficult to sustain. And it's also, it's not um, as simple a position as it might sound. Um, so, I can't remember if I've said this before, but it bears, it bears saying again, um, you know, the, uh, the fact that there is no real way something is, independent of our way of looking, that how it appears depends on our way of looking, and that is not a something at all independent of our way of looking. So these are all, I would say, conclusions of the kind of um, uh, exploration, deep exploration, thorough exploration into emptiness that I would, um, the way at least I would teach it. So the fact that there is no real way something is independent of our way of looking, the fact that how it appears depends on our way of looking, and the fact that it is not a something at all independent of our way of looking, all that does not equate to or allow us to say that all way of lookings and perceptions have equal epistemological and ontological validity, or that they are kind of all exactly the same. 
So there's something kind of very simple sounding like the emptiness teachings, and and it's possible to kind of um, uh, be a little lazy with them, a little sloppy. And what I said about the um, all and any epistemology resting on some uh, uh, unproven assumptions applies also to the epistemology of emptiness. In other words, how do I know emptiness is true? How do I trust that that insight, that perception? It's going that that trust. In other words, that epistemology that I trust this insight, I trust that knowledge, I trust that. Uh, whatever it is about emptiness, that also has to rest on unproven assumptions. What do we do with all this? As I said, sometimes, uh, seems to be quite a common reaction, is just to kind of shrug and get on with things um, in the way that we're used to, which is basically the way that we've been um, usually indoctrinated by a culture or a subculture, or something like that, or the way that we're just predisposed to whatever. What do we do with all this? Um, what ways, is, is there a way we can keep it all alive? Creative, uh, uh, and also still discover, uh, so that there's some rigor, some integrity, some honesty, some challenge, some journey to all these questions and this, this journey. For some people, given, given all this that I've said in terms of as I said, what's opened from uh, the revolutions in physics in the last 120 years, what's opened from the uh, considerations of um, many philosophers of science in terms of uh, science's um, p- position uh, vis-à-vis truth um, and questions of epistemology and ontology, um, what's uh, been shown as the limitations of the scientific method, certainly the limitations of the classical scientific worldview, but also more more widely of the scientific method, the calling into notion that what do we even mean by truth? Um, is it what we used to mean by truth? Can we hold that notion anymore? And we start to realize, oh, then we actually bring a whole package to these questions, a whole, a whole conceptual baggage, linguistic baggage, um, t- uh, methodological baggage, etc. Tendencies of perception, tendencies of observation, habits, and then motivations. And then this other question of like the fact that epistemology is um, both personal and must at some level rest on unproven assumptions. Is there a way that we can kind of take all that uh, earthquake in and all the kind of the fracturing of the ground that we have become used to over hundreds of years um, and uh, actually more than hundreds of years because before the scientific revolution it was just a different kind of solid ground uh, in terms of epistemology and ontology that uh, everyone believed in in the west at least um, can we take all that and the fractured ground from those, those kind of multiple earthquake 
realizations and honest admissions and and actually retain something that um, has some creative tension in it that doesn't just end up with us shrugging and things going flaccid and sloppy and lifeless and actually kind of uncreative remember I can't remember what context I mentioned it now but Stravinsky's thing um, Stravinsky's statement about um, you know when there's constrictions it's actually a more creative process when I have constrictions on what what uh, what kind of um, shape or or rules this music I'm going to compose has to follow, uh, then it's a much more creative pro- uh, prospect. If anything goes, then actually I get a kind of you know, flaccidity, sloppiness. There, there lacks the kind of tension in the wire, in the material, in the soil for, for creativity um, in terms of um, perception, in terms of how we relate to the world, in terms of sensing the soul, in terms of how we re- relate to ethics, etc. So can I, looking at all this kind of fractured ground, admitting all that, taking it in, is there a way to um, relate, to, are there ways to relate to it that still have, as I said, some integrity, some rigor, some challenge, some possibility of um, direction and journey and following a thread rather than it just disintegrates into some kind of um, wobbly, sloppy, uh, blamange kind of thing, where everything everything kind of, eh, it's all okay. It will also then correspondingly lack power, I think. So, with all this, some, uh, some people, uh, I have no idea what proportion, are able not so much to sidestep, but to find a particular avenue with all these questions of epistemology and ontology. And, but, and, and kind of, um, certainly not all the time, but um, move in and out of um, the mode of what we would call the imaginal middle way, or a kind of poetic um, sensibility, poetic view of um, existence and experience, and certainly um, the kinds of experience we talk about, sensing the soul and, and um, imaginal perceptions. And so the poet W.B. Yeats wrote something, um, someone was obviously asking him about this stuff, I don't quite know the context, but um, he said, um, some will ask if I believe all that this book contains, um, and I will not know how to answer. Uh, I don't know what book he's talking about, but the important sentence is the next one. Does the word belief, used as they will use it, belong to our age? Can I think of the world as there, and I here judging it? Does the word belief, used as they will use it, belong to our age? In other words, is it, does it make sense anymore, given everything I've said? Can I think of the world as there, as independently existing, and myself here uh, judging it as an independent objective observer of an independent, um, objectively existing world? Of course he was a poet, and uh, had access to that poetic sensibility, that imaginal middle way. I think, I'm pretty sure I mentioned... um, a couple of years ago in a talk, uh, an article I came across in The Guardian by, I think his name was Stephen, Stephen Tompkins, I think his name was, um, 
and pointed out, um, you know, there's nothing in the Bible, Old or New Testament, um, I think, that states that the Bible should be read literally. Or, I think, in the Quran. I'm not at all familiar with the Quran. And there's nothing there saying you should believe all these stories and statements or whatever uh, as um, uh, you should believe them literally. Um, And so, and this is something Henri Corbett emphasized over and over again, it was really a big part of his agenda um, in his representations of various uh, Islamic teachers from, from history that um, we're not talking about when we talk about the Quran, when we talk about um, uh, the, the Old and New Testament, we're not talking about um, a collection of facts. We're talking about um, a symbolic opus. The whole, the stories, the narratives, the parables, all, all of it, the whole thing is kind of parable in the sense that it invites interpretation. And not just that, not allegory in, in the sense that allegory means this represents that. Oh, okay, I figured out the code, so every time I read that, I'll, I'll understand this. And then the truth, the interpretation, the hermeneutics, stop there. I've finished it now. I know, I know what I could rewrite the whole thing, putting those, substituting word X every time there's word Y or whatever it is. So not allegory, which has a limited sort of this means that, but what Henri uh, Corbin calls tarwills from the tradition tarwill this this kind of um, open hermeneutics open interpretation um, that uh, there's if you like the infinite possibility of interpretation an infinite depth this again in our language infinite un, uh, this unfathomability I cannot box it in I cannot reduce it to one meaning one cause one explanation one representation there's this um, uh, endlessly fecund uh, space that um, scripture, in this case the scripture of the Abrahamic religions, um, that it invites us into and it behooves us to participate in that um, interpretation. It's something we meet, again, create, discover. There's that possibility. This is also a teaching you get in the Zohar, uh, Jewish Kabbalistic mystical um, huge book uh, from the well depends who you believe but let's say the Middle Ages um, and uh, again they're quite um, denigrating of people that just consider the Bible uh, a collection of stories and um, historical data about whatever it is the history of the children of Israel or whatever while they might believe there's a certain there's some truth in that, um, the, not just the the Bible, uh, the reports of those stories, whether they're factual or not, but also the events themselves have this infinite hermeneutic. So there's again this idea, this possibility of infinite hermeneutic, this invitation to an, uh, an endless uh, in, interpretation. So there's, um, certainly for Corbin, um, also in the events of life, there's what we would call the possibility of sensing the soul. It's not just what it seems. There's dimensions and possibilities there. So this kind of 
of um, imaginal middle way, this kind of poetic sensibility, this kind of um, openness uh, and engagement in the um, endless and infinitely fecund possibility of interpretation of hermeneutics, of uh, image and symbol. Um, that's one kind of stance with uh, all this, one kind of thread of navigation with all these questions. Um, and again, I may be repeating myself, but I think it's I think it's uh, important. So I will uh, I will say it again um, with regard to imaginative practice um, and the perceptions we have um, of of the world through sensing the soul that. Uh, you know, given what I've said, um, uh, it may be uh, that humanity will, will not ever arrive at a fully complete and conclusive answer or truth regarding the ontic status, the reality status of imaginal images. So this um, philosophical question, again, can go on forever. And, and I think, um, rather than shrugging, I think it... I think it should. I think it's beautiful to engage in these questions with some rigor, with some integrity. What is what is true? What is real? What is not real? How can we? What knowledge can we trust? Even though we might never reach an answer, there's again, there's an infinite process there um, that's possible. Uh, that's not just uh, unconstrained and not in relationship with uh, the need to be uh, uh, coherent. Um, and to correspond with our experience, etc., and our discoveries. So, but but we may not ever ever reach an end there. Um, but phenomenologically, um, with regard to practice, we can notice that uh, adopting or finding ourselves in the imaginal middle way. Um, in other words, uh, sensing images and soul-making perceptions, the sensing the soul um, as neither real nor not real, as we talked about this kind of theatre-like quality. Um, uh, automatically, that stance of the imaginal middle way, automatically and often effortlessly, allows us to have and feel, uh, with respect to an image, a sense of duty with freedom. We can have duty with freedom. And we can have relative uh, non-attachment. So there's uh, this imaginal middle way. Again, it's it's between two poles, real and not real, two extremes, as they would say in the Dharma. Um, the extreme of reification, the extreme of uh, nihilism. And uh, the imaginal middle way, in 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 being between those two poles, also uh, delivers a kind of middle way that we can have a sense of duty. And the, and the power of and the, the the way the soul is touched by a sense of duty, and the alignment that gives, uh, and the devotion that gives in life, we can have a sense of duty with freedom, and autonomy, and relative non-attachment. So again, it, so the imaginal middle way delivers something between two extremes: a duty where there's no freedom, and no, uh, and, and just attachment and no autonomy, or freedom and non-attachment and autonomy but no sense of duty and that science delivers that as I said automatically and effortlessly this this poise of the imaginal middle way phenomenologically speaking experientially speaking in practice 
And similarly, we can have a sense of sacredness and meaningfulness without fixation or tightness. We can have a sense of depth uh, that is open to more discovery. So it's not a depth and now this is finished. Etc. So there's something about this poise of the imaginable away, experientially, that's um, the kind of Again, it's very fertile. It gives us the. It gives us a lot of. Uh, it has. It delivers a lot of power. Not power over, but power into our being. Power for the journey. Power for creation, discovery. Power for navigation in life. Power for meaningfulness, etc. That that actually works in life. So the imaginary ways is a very helpful, very powerful, very fruitful perspective. And. Uh, we can. It's important to notice that that we, uh, you know, we get these gifts uh, with it: um, freedom, energy, wonder, beauty, joy. They all uh, come out of that imaginal middle way. Conversely, we can uh, see and notice and feel, and, and this is an invitation uh, to actually as I said, see, notice, feel, what happens, what dies, um, uh, and how these gifts are, um, are unavailable. Um, uh, they, they, they shrink, they close, they become unavailable when an image is rarefied or a sensing of the soul perception is rarefied or literalized. So again, um, we can look to the effects to inform our choices, our stances, our attitudes, perspectives, and conceptions. You understand? So there may be that there is this, I think, endless, um, uh, endlessly open and difficult um, philosophical journey to go on regarding ontology and epistemology, and. There is this possibility of the stance of the middle way, the imaginal middle way, um, uh, at least some of the time, much of the time, and this poetic sensibility. And this, um, uh, phenomenologically, we notice this this yields really good results. We can trust it. We can trust what comes out of that. So that's one kind of avenue of possibility out of this um, out of this land fractured landscape and uh, uh, kind of fractured foundations, or what appears to be fractured foundations um, uh, regarding ontology and epistemology. And there's also, and I pointed this out, um, or I began uh, uh, opening up a little bit. Um, the territory of uh, the possibility of a bit more reification, leaning a little bit m- more to the reification pole within the imaginal middle way, and began opening that up in, uh, if I remember, the last the last talks of the Mirrored Gates series. That I think they're between between Icon and Idos, I think they're called. So, is there a possibility of actually not being so strict? or tight with the range of the imaginary middle way, and actually leaning more towards a kind of reification, or allowing a kind of trust in the reality of certain perceptions and senses we have of things when we sense with soul. 
perhaps I'd like to explore that a little bit too as another option.